Hello friends, how's it going? My name is Matt Barr and you are listening to the Looking Sideways Action Sports Podcast. It's the show where I try and uncover the most fascinating stories in action sports and other related endeavours. Episode 181 this is, believe it or not. Big thanks for tuning in, I hope you enjoy it. So my guest this week is legit US snowboarding legend Pat the I Bridges and I am going to officially sound the snowboarding geek off klaxon for this one because we do go deep I'm going to warn you now um, if you like the sound of that then you're going to absolutely love this a couple of things to say about this episode it was recorded right in the thick of Jackson Hole Natural Selection Week where I spent the day well the days the week even working with and hanging out with Pat and that was a really good laugh. Um, as a result, we were, as the saying goes, fully institutionalized and pretty far down ye oldie snowboarding rabbit hole when we recorded this one. I make no apologies for that. I said, I'll make a living. Um, but yeah, you know, we, we like I said, sound the klaxon. The second thing to say is I really, really like Pat. I go back a long way with him. Um, I used to work for Pat when he edited Snowboarder. 20 odd years ago this is i used to write the column called media jihad for pat on european snowboarding matters i think he first commissioned me to do that in about 1999 maybe um that was changed to media militia around the time of the iraq war shouldn't laugh but there you go anyway that's when we first met pat commissioned me to do loads of other bits over the years uh, as we discussed our paths crossed at various points and we've always had a real proper laugh and that's how it was in Jackson where hanging out with Pat was one of the true pleasures of that event for me and Owen cut this man and he bleeds snowboarding he's also got the absolute most encyclopedic knowledge of snowboarding law of anybody I've ever met which considering the bunch of geeks I've spent the last 30 years hanging out with really is saying something um, as I've said elsewhere Pat is as close to a definition of a snowboarding lifer as you're ever going to get. These days he's running Slush the magazine with Stan and continuing to fight the good fight. Incidentally, we recorded this a few weeks before Mike Ranquit had started a quite an unsavoury public one-sided feud with Pat, really, on his Instagram and podcast. Um, I'll talk about that a bit more at the end, but it's a real shame because I'd love to chat to Pat about that. I will have a yarn about it in housekeeping corner anyway anyway here's me and pat make sure you listen out for the moment when he catches me out an absolute beauty with a deadpan wind up that i fell for hook line and sinker the funny fucker all right here it is me and pat bridges the eye enjoy so you want me to lead this if you're open to it. <laughs> we can try. Um, well, we're rolling. This is it. It's happening. How are you? I'm doing amazing. You know, uh, busy January, but a great one. I've, you know, having a great season. You know, I can't complain. I've got, uh, you know, it's late January. I got eight or nine pow days, five days in a snowcat. And Already? Yeah, I think today was my 22nd day riding yeah. this season. See, today was my second day riding in two years, so you you definitely win. <laughs> well, and if we went back a year, you know, I was really busy, and I didn't get to ride as much until later in the season, you know, as far as 2021 goes, so kind of making up for it. I mean, as far as a year ago, I was thinking, 
Well, the more I buckle down now, yeah. the more I'll be able to buckle in later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So where's next? You've got quite a hectic season planned, right? I mean, I can't remember how many bald face trips you mentioned, but that's definitely on the agenda again, right? Um. Well, no. I mean, I don't know. It's always an aspiration. You. Always... I think. I think we both share that aspiration. Like, <laughs> yeah. Given, given I mean, what we're doing here, there's certain things you just don't say no to. But um, yeah. I don't know. I'm. I don't know if that one's going to work out. Um, February is actually pretty wide open for me as yeah. of right now. Purposefully, I'm moving to Lake Tahoe. So yeah, I just which gotta... is a big move for you, man. You've been so cal for fucking years, right? Like, uh, I moved to Southern California in January of 2000. So yeah, 22 years. Yeah. So why the move? Apart, uh, from, apart from the very obvious reason. Well, you know the well. First of all. You know, I was in Southern California because I got offered a job in-house, full-time senior editor at Snowboarder Magazine in January of 2020, and that just happened to be where Snowboarder was, yeah. and I was able to manage it. Yeah. You know, I mean, my work-life balance involved driving up to 395 as much as possible to go ride Mammoth, yeah. you know, and as much as people, you know, I've seen a lot of people, you can make it work being a snowboarder in Southern California. I mean, on one hand, you look at all the best, you know, contest riders in the world today coming out of America or even North America, with the exception of McMorris, they're all living in Orange County, yeah. San Diego County. You look at the Red Gerards, the Brock Crouches, the Haley Langlands, the Chloe Kims, um, just tons of talent out of there. A lot of it's because they're, they have sec, you know, they grow up in mammoth when yeah. the families have vacation homes, but not all, yeah. you know, but, um, yeah, I mean, if you, it, you know, you work for it, you can make it happen. I mean, and then I was fortunate where snowboarder magazine for a good stretch had a house yeah. up in mammoth for the season. So I actually, you know, spent a couple of years as a mammoth local, even more so than just somebody who would trek up there every chance possible. But, it is a big move. Um, it's prompted by one, you know, COVID, you know, COVID, uh, you know, it takes it from a hypothetical working remote to, uh, you know, imperative to yeah. work remote. And that just kind of got a lot of uh, sort of the archaic uh, people who stuck to the trope of, you know, you need to show up in an office, which actually, in some ways, you know, at some organizations, it's mandated by human resources as far as workman's comp insurance, stuff like that, there are, there are actually, um, you know, uh, procedural reasons why some companies won't let people work remote, but you know, obviously COVID through the rule book. Out. Yeah. So there's that. And secondly, um, you know, I started a new platform, yeah. uh, on January 6th, 2021, you know, I resigned from snowboarder magazine for various reasons and, Started a new media outlet that does, you know, print magazines, you know, uh, social, digital events, video, experiential. So I started something new. I was like, hey, the time's right. You know, there are a myriad of reasons why snowboarder was in attrition um, and experiencing atrophy. So I was like, okay, um, I'm not going to sit here and I'm not going to let this legacy diminish on my watch yeah and i was like okay there's a vacuum to be filled in north america as far as media that's able to scale and i was like i i looked five ten years down the line if i didn't sit there and take the experience 
and the takeaways from 20 years working at one of the largest snowboarding media companies in the world if I didn't take that experience and bring it to bear without having the hindrance of a bureaucracy or having to sit there and, um, you know, have a lot of our resources go laterally to support other titles within our building, whether it's surf titles or skateboarding titles or so on and so forth. I wanted to eagerly get into a situation where you eat what you kill, you have ownership of your destiny, and put my experience to bear without having to deal with the opinions of people who aren't regular footer goofy. So what, what, what have you done differently? Because that was kind of the question I was going to ask you, because you, you're also... Yeah, you worked from snowboard for 22 years or 20 years, whatever it was. But obviously before that, you were involved in media on the East Coast. Like, you know, you, you've, you've been doing this a long time. <laughs> you've been like 30, 30 years, really, isn't it? Probably longer that you've actually been involved in portraying snowboarding on your terms. But obviously, as you mentioned with snowboarder, that got more and more squeezed clearly as as for various reasons, which we don't need to go into here because that's been done to death kind of thing. So when you got, when you set up the new platform and you had the freedom, what 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 was the plan to do it differently? How did you want to change it up compared to what you'd been doing before? Well, I mean, let's go back a couple of decades. I mean, generally media, particularly old media or established media uh, in a digital age, um, largely had trouble adapting. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, the media was all in on the first internet wave. And a lot of them got burned, you know, and some people wrote it out and other people like the snowboarder was kind of like once bitten, twice shy. We didn't invest in digital and stuff like that. But once we finally invested in digital social video where I had actually taken a lot of our print budget and put it towards like speculatively as an investment. Um, so while we we lost some of the print resources, purposefully reallocated those to, you know, being more current and uh you know laying the foundation to be able to be more diversified away from print which print is a challenging world you well know? it's a big it's a big move now isn't it to go print like as you've done and i imagine it's it's obviously intentional you know you said there's a gap for it but it's quite out of time now to sort of say i'm gonna and it's a statement isn't it i'm gonna produce a print magazine you know and, and final thing before you answer like even here we're at, we're at jackson for natural selection obviously you're still celebrating print you know you just released the the danny cover the way that you've the way that you've gone about that is to really venerate print you know it's like this is like the cover is is a legitimate thing it's a milestone in snowboard and you like you really like planting the flag for that side of the culture basically which is quite a risk these days to do well there's a couple things to that i mean people listening to this might not know um you know, the traditional print model as far as magazines. I mean, you got to think in uh, the late 90s, early 2000s, Transworld and Snowboarder were each printing anywhere from two to 400,000 magazines. Which is mental. Yeah. And, <laughs> when you and think you back, had, isn't it? Probably had anywhere from 60 to 120,000 subscribers yeah. at the peak, you know. But what's interesting is all the subscribers were um, acquired at a loss. Yeah. You know, that, that you do make a little bit of money and it offsets some of the costs. But the, the goal with, like, distribution was to get as many eyeballs as possible. Some of the ways were really authentic. Some of the ways were more um, 
I'm not going to say nefarious, but <laughs> less legitimate. Calculated. Calculated. Let's say well, that. calculated. Yeah. You know, like some people would get a penny subscription, uh, doctor's offices. I mean, you know, publishers clearing house sweepstakes is an example of a yeah. company that would put magazines in people's hands for pennies on the dollar. But the goal there was you, you took a loss on distribution in hopes that you would make up for it in ad revenue. Makes sense. But you never... There's hard costs associated with, with print, and there's a finite amount of content. Um, there's sort of smaller, um, you know, windows of release. Um, there's a lot of challenges, let's say. Um, but you're never going to compete with digital on scale as far as uh, the amount of eyeballs you can get. Because, frankly, um, it is kind of infinite. And at the same time, the amount of content that you can put out there, like right now, we uh, each issue of Slush is 148 pages. Um, but with the internet, you know, as, as much content as you can gather and curate and as quickly as you can create the post and hit, you know, publish, there really is no limit to how much you can do. But we, we can't you know, sit there and say, oh, this interview is great. I mean, we, I can now if it pencils out and say, we're going to go up to 156 pages, but, um, you know, so it's hard to compete. And also about 15 years ago with the emergence of Google, yeah, which is now called alphabet, you know, it's Google and YouTube. What Google did was Google turned media into Moneyball kind of like saber metrics, you know, baseball, um, where everything can kind of be quantified down to a metric, you know, and, and as far as with Google, you know, ad dollars and, you know, paid search and all that stuff, Google AdWords, um, you know, they're, they had the backing, they had the technology and they, their goal was to sit there and say, Hey, let's take what has traditionally been an irrational, largely a gut game. Yeah. As far as media, I mean, I loved watching Mad Men. Yeah. Because Mad Men sort of um, was entrenched in that that world of pass along rates. Yeah. And, ex exactly. Yeah. And the um, the romanticizing of um, point of view when it came came to advertising. Yeah. You know, and you tried to quantify it. You would do reader surveys or you would sit there and create, uh, you know, postal statements, you know, that you'll still see them in magazines coming out of North America, which is basically um, one level of auditing of your circulation. Um, but at the same time, you know, they would, you know, at the time, you know, you're competing against radio, you're competing against direct marketing, which at the time direct marketing wasn't newsletters or it wasn't paid reach on social media, dark posts, stuff like that. You know, up until, you know, 15 years ago, direct marketing was sending out newsletters in the real world, analog newsletters with a stamp on an envelope, flyers. I mean, you still get them from grocery stores or you still get certain catalogs. Um, it is something that frustrates me. Like, why do I get a flyer for <laughs> a Kroger store? Why is this still happening? Yeah. No, and I think that's partially a jobs program for the Postal Service. But... Um, you know, we were competing against television, yeah. um, particularly in our space, what snowboarding, a lot of people don't realize in snowboarding and there is one marketing budget and people would be like, Oh, we have a team budget. Oh, we have a video budget. Oh, we have a content creation budget now as of late. 
or we have a social media budget or we have a point of sale budget point of pop budget which is you know the carpets for the snowboard brand that appear for free as a uh, where they give them to the shops stuff like that um but back then uh snowboarding was competing against television in order to sit there and create a compelling case not that anybody had the budgets or the means to create television commercials necessarily but um in order to sort of put a ribbon on your circulation you'd be like hey you know we print 200,000 magazines we have 100,000 subscribers and each subscriber um each magazine is seen by five people. That's pass along rate or 10 people. So all of a sudden that 100,000 subscribers turns into half a million people see each copy of Snowboarder or Transworld. That is a very arbitrary or subjective. It's like not, it's not quantifiable. No. Yet what Google did was Google came in, even disrupted television, certainly disrupted radio. They sat there and they said, hey, here are the analytics. Here well, are the they numbers. Made, they made it about the metric, didn't they? basically they and and it's it's interesting seeing like how that's you know as we're talking about like the the influence that's that's had on media like in, and the way that media operates and tells stories well yeah so in summation about 15 years ago um alphabet turned media into moneyball yeah exactly you know? and that really is what disrupted things because they started to say hey you could you could really hone in on a certain demographic, a certain geo target. Um, yeah, so that, that changed things, but that's print was hard to adapt to that because there were these, you know, sort of sacred cows of print. Like, oh, the, the theory that the more magazines you print, the more magazines you put in people's hands, um, the more money you'll be able to make because there's something called a CPM, which is stands for cost per thousand. So it's like, you spend $5,000 on an ad um, and that magazine's going to uh, 5,000 people. That's a $1,000 CPM, you know, it's a thousand dollars to reach a thousand, you know, a thousand people that, that whole CPM model is part of why, you know, snowboarder was challenged because there were some parent magazines or sister publications like national Enquirer or men's journal, that lived and died by it. Yeah. And in a COVID era, one, Men's Journal's main distribution was to like Hudson News, Hudson Books, uh, more uh, mainstream newsstands, broad reach newsstands. Um, people weren't flying. Yeah. People weren't going into those outlets. And then same thing, there's something called a newsstand packet at the checkout counter where you go to a grocery store and you see Cosmo or National Choir. I mean, by the time in COVID, somebody got to the, to the checkout counter and the belt, the last thing you were doing is impulse buying anything. You were throwing everything on the scanner to get it in your cart as quick as possible. So the company was really in a challenged place, but your original point was, what are we doing differently? And a lot of what um, Slush is doing differently is stuff that Snowboarder had already started doing differently, where it was like right-siding print distribution um, to, you know, you look at how much, you know, there are advertisers who are willing to advertise and support print. And I'll get into another irony of that, but there are advertisers who are willing to spend money and support print, but they, there's a ceiling to how much they'll spend. And just throwing distribution at that number 
isn't necessarily going to raise that ceiling. Meaning, so what you can do is you could say, okay, how much, what is the stomach of the marketplace for advertising? And you right side the distribution to that. The other thing people don't realize, and a lot of people adhere to more traditional newsstand distribution out of ego, I say, out of ego, because they like, you know, going to a grocery store and seeing their magazine side by side yeah. with these stoic publications like Time Magazine. Often a, often a, a driver of these decisions, let's say. What, ego? Yeah. Perhaps, you know, and it legitimizes things. Um, but at what cost? And the dirty truth of it is, when you go to a grocery store or one of those more traditional newsstands, eight to nine out of every 10 magazines ends up in the trash. You know, what offsets it is some zones like the grocery stores in Jackson Hole, you might sell a lot of copies of Snow Butter or Powder. But, you know, the grocery stores in Des Moines, Iowa, you might sell none. Yeah. Um, and frankly, a lot of it, too, I think was driven by the fact that they promised the advertisers that's something tangible. If you're not regular or goofy and you don't open a magazine to really be vested in it as an advertiser, you do know what newsstand distribution is. You do know what Barnes & Noble is, you know. Um, but the other side of it, starting at Snowboarder and carried forward with Slush, is the notion that diversification. And this is something that why Snowboarder was able to thrive for the last more, more than a decade was because we created these silos these yeah. revenue funnels yeah you were good you you guys at, at basic basically keeping abreast of the change by having these silos having these different because obviously events were huge for you guys always huge and basically using these to kind of sustain in this new landscape right that which was presumably like a pretty pretty well, clear plan there was no real strategic decision that differentiated us but i woke up to a couple things where it was like you know, we all can romanticize an era where it was very uh, binary as far as ad buying. Where yeah, it was like the good old days. Yeah, where you're like, oh, Transworld and Snowboard. Which is when we sort of started, right? The, yeah. The, the power of us, you and know. It's, if you were a marketing director in 2001, you were like, okay, there are two magazines we got to be in yeah. globally. And then it obviously would in different regions, it would, there was probably a similar conversation, but Snowboarder and Transworld, it was like, it was a lob, it was a gimme. Yeah. They could easily do that. It wasn't later till it became rational to realize that, you know, the, the money that Transworld and Snowboarder was getting was coming out of the same budget as team rider salaries and their incentive packages and travel budgets, or the, like I said, POP or, or video sponsorships, stuff like that. And it's, um, and video sponsorships, interesting because video sponsorship for the longest time got a pass where everybody was cynical saying like, oh, everybody's in the tank for Burton in the print world or whatever. When in all actuality, they didn't aim a camera at anybody <laughs> as far as the film companies didn't aim a camera at anybody. They'd be like, well, we'd love to film with you. Now find us $60,000, you know? And it's like, and because they weren't held to these old um, conventions, as being the fourth estate, you know, and as being a church and state and all this stuff. I mean, there was no editorial integrity in a lot of movies. And frankly, they got a lot of pass for when they did show integrity. They put it all back on the writer. I mean, the classic story is Mark Frank Montoya going to a MacDog premiere, having his sponsors and his family there and getting towards the end of the film. And he's like, oh, I must have Ender. 
<laughs> and then the credits roll, and he's like, oh, well, I must not be in the movie. And and he had a row with Mac Dog. Mac Dog stopped filming in the Utah backcountry explicitly at Mark Frank Montoya's warning. And you know what? His sponsor sponsored the movie again the next year because that is how much of a influence the you know movie companies like Mac Dog had. But specific to snowboarder and why it carried forward with slush is um we created these revenue funnels and it's weird to say revenue funnels i sound like such a suit but it's a means to an end you know like warren miller you yeah. know, do what well, it you, takes you, to get a free you, lift ticket exactly you you get you, you get versed in it don't you you know and you have to have that hat to wear when you need it let's say well in a lot of ways if you're ignorant to it you're going to get eaten, eaten alive you, by the wolves you, you can only have a I think you can only have a career as long as yours straddling so many different trends as we're describing, as we're discussing with, you know, you you need to be able to talk that language. It's just the fact of the matter. Yeah. And you need to kind of really, um, you need to have a unique set of ambition. Yeah. You know, if your ambition is to, you know, um, get rich off of snowboarding media, I always joke, I lived the rich life of a poor writer. And, uh, well, that, was and again, the, that was the goal, though, right? Well, and, and again, uh, you know, reading Wine, Women, Warren, and Skiing, the <laughs> Warren Miller's first book in 1998 at the Grand Prix, I came away from it thinking, well, yeah, I mean, you can you could hone it down to, like, what can I do to get a free lift ticket? Yeah. You know, and that that is a rational... And if it involves using the phrase funnels of revenue every now and again, then that's, that's fine. ROI. <laughs> um, but, but diversity is key because as print was the cash cow, was the thing that kept the lights on, was the thing that enabled an amazing lifestyle, was the thing that enabled us to have a house in Mammoth for four years. As print was in decline because it was fighting a new media headwind, late, late aughts, um, it became apparent. I mean, straight up, uh, why I had to reallocate resources away from print was because advertisers were coming at us and we were getting it from all sides. And they're like, um, and it got pretty bloody and I had gotten pretty complacent. I was caring more about snowboarding all the time and, you know, living that old um, expectation as opposed to being in the moment yeah. as far as work and professionally. But I realized, you know, you need to empathize. At that point, I was like, you need to empathize and figure out what, what the return, why, why is somebody enabling this? Yeah. And if they're not getting it, what they need out of it as far as an advertiser or a subscriber or some other stakeholder, if they're not getting what they need out of it, then they're going to go someplace else because it's not like it was just Transworld and Snowboarder and no other options out there anymore. You know, we had snowboard mag and we had frequency and Lord knows, you know, there were digital properties, whether it's like, you know, Yobi. And then because of, you know, there are no borders, with the exception of China, when it comes to digital content, um, it opened up the pool of people. And then it all got a bit more um, parsed up with social media. Too. Yeah. So all of a sudden it's like so much you can do. And you could either sit there and lament it and you could sit there and, and put your head in the sand or you can try and get ahead of it. And we were playing catch up for a lot of that time. Yeah. But, you know, slush is largely, um, you know, a result of, of what I had already done because 
And here's another thing. If Snow Butter Magazine wasn't successful, I'm not crazy. Um, anybody who's rational would say, if Snow Butter Magazine wasn't successful, then you're not going to start something on your own. But because Snow Butter was very successful, it's like um, with the mortgage crisis. You know, when, uh, when all those mortgage tranches, the when the derivatives, when the subprime, yeah. when those derivatives failed, it wasn't because nobody paid their mortgage. <laughs> yeah. That's where, same thing. Uh, the Enthusiast Network, which is one of the revolving door of um, umbrella names for our group, um, but the last one, you know, the Enthusiast Network wasn't successful because nobody was successful. It wasn't successful because the majority of the properties in there were like toxic assets, but it doesn't mean that all of it was a failure, you know? And that's the challenge there where I'm like, okay, snowboarding has been under the thumb. We've never been an island, you know, whether we were having to um, jump through hoops to get ski resort acceptance or, you know, whether it was surf, skate, ski companies coming in and exerting their, you know, uh, ideologies on our sport for good. And in some ways from a business standpoint for bad, you know, um, I mean, board riders, great example, Quicksilver. I mean, Quicksilver, if you look in 2004, 2005, it's a ridiculous amount of, um, as far as the brand side, the conversation in Snowboard, they owned Roxy, Quicksilver, Mervin, Rosignol. Yeah, they, they just, yeah, DC. DC yeah. yeah, and all quick, of them. Like quick cup event properties, like all, you know, so much going on, basically. Yeah, yeah, totally. And then, you know, Billabong's similar with, like, brands like Nixon or, uh, I believe, Planet Earth, which Planet Earth started holding. I mean. The Von Zipper they had as Von well. Von Zipper, yeah. you know, interestingly. We yeah. saw Greg Tomlinson today right. in the lobby here. But, uh, yeah, no. Uh, so, but the point of it is with Slush, it's it ultimately it's like my focus as the preeminent decision maker, and I'm diplomatic with my team at times probably to a fault, but – I don't have to worry about, um, you know, what is somebody else factoring into this? It's yeah. not just about, uh, you know, snowboarding for snowboarding's sake or the culture. You know, um, they're worried about, you know, if Snowboarder Magazine um, needs something, well, that means that they're going to, Snowboarder Magazine isn't going to be able to give that to another magazine to help them stay solvent. And when you get into these bigger corporate structures, um, there are people who are motivated to have as much business. I mean, what's crazy is the people who assert themselves into conversations, whether it's an agency or whether it's somebody in an organization. I mean, it happens at small businesses and big businesses. But like you see it where people show up for a Zoom call in the last two years and you're like, why is this person even on the Zoom call? And it's because job security. Yeah. <laughs> they want to, <laughs> you know, somebody will say the most benign thing in a meeting and the whole reason why is they want their name on the notes. Yeah. You know, and it's like, you'd be like, eh, it's weird. And it's the same thing at a higher level, particularly what people don't realize in media. And you kind of, you know, back to the Mad Men, where you see Roger Sterling as the guy who is taking the 10 martini lunches and has the, you know, the room at the Ritz-Carlton for 
siestas in the afternoon, but that's the guy who handled American Tobacco yeah. on the TV show. So he's the guy who holds the purse strings. And the guy who holds the purse strings largely because the person who enables that guy to be that way is also making money off of him. He's got a bonus tied to that top line revenue and stuff. So it becomes very um, corrupt. And it becomes very corrupt because, you know, you've got people who really their ambition is something as, um, as capitalistic and American as, you know, you know, whoever, whoever makes the most money wins in the end. And that, that's, and I think people get to the end and they go, you know, maybe I should have written a little bit more powder. Well, just on this whole topic, I had a really fascinating conversation with Chas Smithy tonight about beach grit. Cause I mean, they've almost like weaponized this process to like a, that, you, that we're talking about like just go back a little bit in the conversations like the the metric you know like the they've almost like created something there which is unashamedly about that and that's the point of it and they can also make it about surf culture in a way you know and talking to him about that that is completely intentional and that is basically the point and the more commercial a road they go down the more they unashamedly go down that road and it works for him and i was kind of it's quite it's the opposite of what you're talking about it's the opposite of what i of what i I, of what i do he was saying to me like you should do more of what i do and i was like "Mm, that's not what i do but i just thought it was pretty fascinating because what you know we're talking about how you represent the culture in this new landscape and you know for you it's slush for me it's this for him it's beach grit they're all different things and I kind of took my hat off a bit, really. <laughs> you know, well, no, no, I was a bit and, like, "Wow, that is the diabolical vision." Well, okay. he's very—he's <laughs> very self-aware. And I go to Beach Grit two, three times a week. I don't serve, yeah, but I—I uh, I am very impressed with what he's been able to create with that. And I, you know, because you know, to- you know, like you know, we're talking about like you know what goes into it, and also you, you know, like to to have that stance editorially with that is is quite wild really well and he's a classic cynic yeah and and i'm i admire it and beach grid is largely where you know i look at my rich you mentioned the 90s i mean i had a magazine in new england that was so east edge is that what that was uh, it was it was called ei we'll call it ei right we won't get into the into what the the acronym means but um far away (laughs) no east infection it's talking about the infectious nature of snowboarding (laughs) on the east coast but that is a that snark that angst and i have some very interesting perspectives on that but i mean what you're saying specific to the clickbait and the punchiness of what beach grit does i mean discovery channel might do shark week i mean beach grit does shark year yeah you know yeah exactly never never miss an opportunity to take advantage of a good shark attack exactly yeah (laughs) and stuff and only fans and all that stuff and it and it works yeah well they make make it the thing like they they they, that's that's what they do and they can push and push and push and keep pushing and it'll never end basically because that's it's reflecting the wider landscape, isn't it? Yeah, but it's very savvy in a modern digital it's era. It's very fucking it? clever. But, I mean, we bring up print. I mean, snowboarders was, um, we started to shift, and, and I'm not slush. We talk about print, and I, I do say, you know, slush is a lot more than just print, similar as my past ventures. But without the events, we couldn't do print. Without 
the social, we couldn't do print. Without the digital, we couldn't do print. Without the um, video, we couldn't do print. The video has got different challenges. I mean, it's interesting. They all find challenges because, um, you know, you got a website. You know, people aren't going to websites like they used to, you know. And, and largely, print almost has become much more of a get than websites because print is a prestige product. Now, with us... By distributing the print magazine for free, 90% of our distribution is free to 230 stores across North America. We are the only people who are driving people into retail four times a year in a nonpartisan fashion, meaning ride snowboards, trying to get people into ride dealers. Burton's trying to get people into Burton dealers well, and dealer pure, stores. It's still a kernel of pure editorial, that's why. Like It's a representation of your and Stan's vision of snowboard and everyone that works for it. So that's why it's nonpartisan isn't it and that's like the the power of it still well it's the power of it too and we've got a very powerful coalition of support from 230 retailers across north america and that's an interesting part of my dna as a snowboarder is whether it's you know, going to ride on snowboard shops in Killington or the Sound Bear in Rutland, Vermont, or Alan Pools in Engineering in Menden, or Out of Bounds in Killington, or certainly Dark Side Snowboard Shop in Killington, but even living in Burlington with the B Side and going to the boarding house. I mean, I remember my meccas, my churches, were going to the Burton showroom in Manchester as a 15 year old or driving north, stealing my parents' car to go up to the boarding house with Andy and Jack Hogland's store. Like these were the places where they, um, the promised land, like somewhat the Valhalla of culture, you know? So, um, you know, the, the print thing's just got to be its prestige, meaning people yeah. are like, okay, we get this. But the other side of it is what is lost? And this is a big part of the conversation with slush in general, where it's not about um, trying to get as much ad dollars as possible, this, that, or the other thing. What it really is trying to do is create a stability and create a, a non-secularized um, vision of snowboarding media where you've got um, representation as far as gender, as far as ethnicity, um, but also as far as affinity in snowboarding. And then there's different generations of riders, which right now we're at our second to third generation. I would say we're at our fourth. But, you know, trying to be more big tent about it and stuff, but it's a prestige thing because, um, you know, it's funny. I, I talk to people where like, hey, we want to do an event there. And they're like, cool. Four months earlier, the same resort would be like, hey, we can't advertise in print. Four months later, I go, hey, we want to do an event. They're like, cool, we'll do this event, but is there going to be a print story? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You wouldn't advertise in print, but now you're only going to do the event if there's a print story? Where's the disconnect here? But, you know, I think um, if, I think it's very hard now, if print's your only thing, to pay an editor, to pay an art director, you know, to pay a photo editor, you can't do it. You couldn't do it 10 years ago. And that's why a lot of people found challenge and, and dropped away. The other big initiative with Slush is to sit there and, and give back. And I learned long ago, um, your constituents and your supporters want to see, um, want to see the fruits of what they have, 
what what's happening. And when I say that, it's not like advertisers want to see their writers in print, stuff like that, or see their writers on social or digital. But what it is is they don't want to see their ad dollars going to some faceless corporate entity. They want to sit there and say, oh, this is why I'm I'm supporting Slush because I could pick up the phone, talk to Pat and Pat could tell me how to do QR codes. Or I can sit there and sponsor an event and I'm not sitting there dealing with some agency that's going to set up a VIP tent. No, I'm paying for this and there's the Slush stash staff putting height meters up on the top of a quarter pipe like the art director and the editorial director and the publisher are sitting there you know it's like we're on Iwo Jima trying to put 25 <laughs> foot height meters up but it's but the other part of it is people can lament the loss and so when Snowboarder and Transworld were really in turbulent as we got bought by our last entity I I got in front of it and I always whenever things were beyond our control but we were going to have to do damage control. And it's funny, you know, there's PR people here, whether it's Laura Bodner who does PR for Natural Selection Tour, Abby Young does PR for Burton. You know, those are people I've reached out to when I've had PR crises, like the president of companies saying Snowboarder Magazine's never making a magazine again in 2017. And sure enough, we were the last magazine out of that building. You know, I took it as a dare. But <laughs> I was like, how do we do this? And there were certain tools in the toolkit that I leaned into them to get advice on. But if Snowboarder and Transworld, when they, when they were, you know, the beginning of the end, so to speak, though they're Snowboarder in particular is still very much a to be determined thing. Um, I got in front of it with the industry and I'm like, you know, you can't, I don't want to see any crocodile tears. You know, I don't want to see crocodile tears from the audience who doesn't subscribe. I don't want to see crocodile tears from the writers who don't who who sit there and and don't don't take part and participate in, in the process. And I don't want to see any crocodile tears from the advertisers who don't advertise being like, oh, you know, sad day today in snowboarding media where it's like, well, you could have done something about it. Why are you giving all this money to Zuckerberg? You know, why are you? T I mean, I've said it in other podcasts, but I mean, here we are in action sports and a majority of the advertising revenue goes to two entities. They're going to Meta and they're going to Alphabet. Well, here we are at the natural selection. How many people from Meta and Alphabet are here <laughs> at this event? You know, and it's crazy. In every single logo you're seeing at natural selection or every single logo you see in slush or every single logo, you know, it's, I don't even know if I can name a company that hasn't done a slush has never done a sponsored post, but that's it. That's the only company I can name. You know, you look at outside, you can't, you can't open up Facebook without seeing an outside media property, which outside currently is hoovering everything into their system because what they want to do is turn everybody into a digital subscriber. And once they get everybody into that digital subscription, they're going to stop spending money on the vertical, verticals meaning the individual sports. They're gonna start cutting the staffs because they've already acquired that audience to hit scale because they wanna go public, you know? And right now, with outside owning uh, Beta Mountain Bike or owning Ski Skiing and sniffing around, Surfer, Snowboarder, all these magazines, it's crazy, you know? And it's like the industry, the readers, the audience, the writers, I'm thinking to myself, like, if you ever want to have a cover of Slush the Magazine, if you ever want to see a writer on the cover of Slush the Magazine, you don't have to spend tens of thousands of dollars. 
but you don't have to ignore that you know you you want the you want it's almost like you want to um it's an entitlement oh we want the coverage but we don't want to pay for it yeah you know and that's that's tough because it's really not that hard to have a vibrant media in action sports and ultimately it comes down to um the readers you know changing habits which i mean you can't you can't fight the wind um but it also comes down to the advertisers and it and it is you know being like a bit early on in slush is a big conversation because right now direct to consumer you know and we're all seeing it and and even outside with their curated um and here we are dealing with the one click fast, you know, at natural selection. Which, a, na- a name I think we're all going to be hearing a lot more of in our industry. <laughs> well, perhaps, you know, and, and Slush is currently in year one, 10% readers supported. Yeah. Which is good and bad. I mean, it's, um, it, it, it's good if you can muster a lot of advertising support and it's bad if it's, um, if you didn't muster a lot of advertising support, but, um, you know, if you want to see your, if you want to see your rider win the World Quarter Pipe Championships, what did you do to ensure that Slush will be around to do that? If you want to see your rider on the cover of Trans World Snowboarding, what did you do as a brand? What did you do if you enjoyed, um, as a as a pro rider, if you enjoyed getting that cover of Trans World, did you subscribe after you got that cover? It's a big question probably not like, well no and that's the era of entitlement and yeah stuff, well that was it? the thing wasn't it like i, I saw a, i think can't remember which one went bust and all the you know all the instagram posts were coming out and i, I can't remember what i can't remember who said it but somebody was like yeah this is all very nice but where were you when it was needed <laughs> did you oh, well, buy I'll it i'll tell you did you subscribe that would, it that would be desiree melanson right i remember seeing a post where it was like all right you know what what are you talking about like when it when it mattered you weren't there and now it's over it's like oh i really miss this you know yeah and it's um but i mean you know both front of the house which i say like putting the words to the page telling the tales hosting the event ideating the event there's that side of it, but then back of the house, which is like sort of making the sausage. I've learned a lot on both sides. Um, and frankly, what I want to do is to be the guy who's making the sausage so people like my staff at Slush, whether it's Stan Levier or Ted Borland or Justin Meyer or Max Tokunaga or Kyle Sauter, you know, or Bob Plum, our photo editor, so that they're, they don't have to worry about, you know, how the ads come in or how the how the money is accrued to give them a travel budget or pay them. And similarly, you know, we are industry leading in terms of buyouts. We're industry leading in terms of, cause I come from a creator background, you know, when I got hired by snowboarder to come in full time, I was a waiter full time. I was a part-time amateur snowboarder, a journeyman doing a couple of big air contests here and there. And I was teaching kids, elementary school kids, two days a week, how to snowboard to I get a free not, season pass. I, I did not know that. Yeah, I, uh, there was this one kid, uh, yeah, I would do that. I mean, and I'm not alone, you know? I mean, I was the, you know, I'm the offspring of snow, you know, ski bums. You know, my parents moved up from Long Island and Massachusetts in the 60s to bartend wait tables and eventually sell real estate and manage hotels. But that was 
that's in my DNA and stuff, and it's however you make it work. And unfortunately, I uh, lament what's been lost as, you know, the with what's going on with livable wages and ski towns. And it's been, and it really, chickens came home to roost the first year of COVID in the winter of, you know, 21, because they couldn't get staff because, you know, they had relied so much on seasonal workers. They're called J1s, whether it's from South America, you know, Australia, New Zealand, wherever. With COVID, they couldn't come in, and all of a sudden they realized, and it's like, well, you know, you you made this happen. Yeah. If you don't have, you know, I look at people like Pat Moore, Jamie Anderson, myself, Billy Anderson. Um, we're all the products, uh, Honda Beeman, of working class ski town families. And it goes back to what I said before. You know, it's, I love the riders, but there's something wrong when the best snowboarders coming out of America as far as competitive riders are coming out of, not coming out of ski towns. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that that's something I've, it's come up a few times recently on the podcast, that that kind of, how that's checked. Well, with, with the conversation with Danny, actually, Danny Davis, like we, we talked about that a little bit. Well, Danny Davis would not be where he is today. I mean, you could look at it on paper and be like, well, he went to Stratton Mountain School, which means his parents had to pay thirty to $40,000 a year. No. Ross Powers, yeah. scholarship. He yeah. got a scholarship from Ross Powers, he, which I don't know. I haven't heard the podcast yeah, yet. No, he, but he, he, mentioned, he mentioned that, but we were talking about that, that, you know, like how, yeah, like th- that story's getting less frequent, isn't it? You know, that's, and that's... Well, there's other writers like Forrest Bailey who got a scholarship from the Ross Powers Foundation, Jamie Anderson with like Denver War helping to subsidize his early snowboarding efforts and his brother. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, but it can shift. I mean, right now, um, we're at a high, high mark. I mean, I, I, nothing frustrates me more than people who don't know the numbers and they just repeat talking points that are inaccurate. I mean, last year, snowboarding experienced its fifth best participatory season ever in North America, United States in particular. And I think um, certainly Europe was a different story there. But it's like, yep. <laughs> I mean, years ago, uh, the Boston Globe put out a story on uh, snowboarding being in decline. Yeah. I think it was like seven or eight years ago. I, and I got a call from the New yeah. York Times, might've been, I'm not gonna say any names, but they're like, hey, can we get a quote from you? And I'm like, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you, um, yeah, I don't. I think that's false because snowboarding is a weather-dependent sport, and California has the biggest population in the United States, has the most skier visits in the United States, and if California is in a drought because snowboarding is forty-seven percent of the skier visits in California, snowboarding is going to be in decline. If in the aggregate there's a half million less skier visits in California, then that means like two hundred and forty-some odd thousand skier visits aren't accrued in the national number, and they're like, well. That's good. I'm gonna I'm gonna choose a different person Thank, to get an answer. Thanks for that. From. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, this kind of brings me to the, to my next question. Really, um, you know, we've been working together on and off for a long time. You commissioned me twenty years ago, I think. We've been working together this year. Were you a part of the jihad or yeah. the militia? Yeah, but I was I was jihad. Yeah, I was early. That was it, an interesting. And then uh, it changed. Yeah. Caving to. Um, public pressure i remember yeah. as far as Certainly we that... didn't even get any feedback on it but we just knew after 9 11 the word jihad all of a sudden suddenly it was entered not... the zeitgeist and yeah. people weren't and 
and in an era of Google at the time, now people could find out what we meant when we said media holy war. I mean, I <laughs> I grew up watching TV with Beirut and all this stuff, and I I, I used knew. to use that phrase quite a lot pre nine eleven as a, as a little metaphor. For well, our, for media our world. jihad was. Yeah just something we did with East Infection where we were pretending that all these people from the East Coast in the mainstream snowboarding media were our minions, like <laughs> sort of like Manchurian candidates, sleeper cells. <laughs> and we called them the media jihad and uh, people would look at us like we were psychotic, which we were. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so you were part. So it's so, interesting. Yeah. Did you talk to Jeff Moran? So again. Did you talk to Jeff Moran? About that? No, I didn't. Because he, he was part of the... Ah, uh, was he? Right, I need to mention too. that to Jeff. Yeah, but what I was going to say, so we've been working together this year on the uh, selection committee, and now we're working together here as both announcing for the event. And, you know, you are like a custodian of the of the culture. Like, let's let's be frank about that. Like, and one of the things I really noticed when we were working on, on the selection committee was that is always at the forefront of your decision-making. You know, the conversations that we're having about... You're always, I mean, we've all got that, but you're very overt about that. And then even here, you know, like we just had a rider meeting. We don't need to go into specifics of that at all. Um, but you are kind of the spokesperson for the for the culture, really. The riders certainly see you that way. That's clear. Um, so I just wonder how conscious you are of that and how much slush is it for you a vehicle for that um okay so it's an interesting time i don't i don't seek it out but i don't necessarily back away from it just because it's like i learned long ago you can't um you can't complain about something if you didn't participate in a fashion that could create make it better yeah you know, and it's like, yeah, you could sit there and not lay it on the line or not do the work or not um, voice concerns. If you don't voice the concern and you, can't, and you had it, then you can't complain. You know, if you voice the concern and it still ends up in a bad place and they didn't take your advice or they didn't, you know, follow through. Yeah, then you could kind of be like, you know, talk a little shit or whatever. But I mean, I've also, I mean, I've come a long way. I mean, I've had doors closed, bridges Pardon, you know, ironically, I've had bridges burned, you know, but I, um, let me put my jacket on, but keep talking. Yeah. I don't seek it out, but also right now I have a different, um, motivation, you know, whether it's like doing deer rider, which oh, put my jacket on, drop my mic. Good example. Cause we talked about this the other night and yeah. we talked about how you, I mean, you shaped it in a in a. I'm I'm not trying to give you credit for it. I'm not I'm not trying to be simplistic. But all I'm saying is like you you definitely used your heft, let's say, to to shape that story. Well, we can get into it, but let me finish that initial talk. Is like whether it's going on the bomb hole, or you know, talking about Kimi Fasani on microdose, which I do have. A, I want to honor. Kimmy as a friend and as you know somebody who's impacted sports so much similarly with Jake I mean there's always that but also now I have an added responsibility because I spent 20 years building and building a platform and building a community and an audience with snowboarder and now I don't have that audience so I need to sit there and 
and and put myself out there and particularly since you know we are you know wanting to be the biggest if i mean we are the most widely distributed snowboarding publication in the world right now which is crazy because we just started but it's not it's because i had some tools in the toolkit to make that happen and it is authentic and <laughs> but i um you know, going on the bomb hole, doing Deer Rider. I mean, there's it's no coincidence I'm wearing a slush shirt. Those slush shirts were made because I was filming within two weeks of resigning from Snowboarder. I was filming these interviews that'll appear on HBO Max, you know, and I, I it's marketing. But at the same time, and this I went to the Deer Rider premiere, and, and this is something that was a bit melancholy towards the end, you know, talking to people like Ben. I love Ben Ferguson. I've known Ben Ferguson since he was like nine or 10. And we collaborated on a lot of stuff and we ride, no cameras, no events. You know, he's just awesome dude. And we, we've had some unspeakable times, but you know, he's getting emotional. Like, listen, I really appreciated what you said and stuff like very gracious stuff. And same with like, and I'm looking around and I'm thinking to myself 20 years from now, you know, who's going to, Who's going to pay that tribute? Who's going to be passing on the oral history of snowboarding? Because I, one, in some ways that burden is tough. You know, most recently we lost Marco Grillo. Amazing individual. And I was talking to Stan and I'm like, Stan, I'd love to pay tribute to Marco. But where are you at with it? And Stan's like, I want to. You know, because that's a hard thing, you know, somebody like Mike Wigley passes away. Mike Wigley, huge influence on what we do. I mean, every time somebody steps out of a helicopter, you know, to go shred insane lines, you know, Mike Wigley. And I mean, and he even he was the father-in-law buddy of mine, Jonas Gwynn. And Jonas's, his grandson was Charlie Gwynn, who I lapped with from Lake Louise to Mount Hood, you know. And, um, yeah, it's just, it's just... I wish, I wish other people um, had been given the same chance and opportunity to, 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 to become those oral historians a bit more. And I, I love Tom. Um, I want Tom Monteroso, who has, you know, worked, collaborated with me for a decade. Um, amazing friend. You know, some of the best laughs of my life were standing there side by side with Tom and some of the best days snowboarding, but it's like, um, I was really having a melancholy moment looking around saying, you know, who's, who's going to have, you know, have the lens in the faculties to keep those stories going and who's going to tell the stories of this night. I mean, do we want a 70 year old, you know, Pat Bridges sitting there going, and this is what happened in the writer meeting yeah, well, at that, the natural selection. Well, that, that'll be happening. <laughs> yeah. Here's what went down in the writer meeting at the natural selection. Yeah. Hold on a second. There's no danger there. Put my walker down. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, I don't know. I mean, yes, but at this, I don't know why I've at, cause I, I don't have as good of a memory as people think. I mean, it's one of those instances you say it enough, everybody, it becomes true. <laughs> I think that's part of it. And I think, um, yeah, I've just, uh, and it goes back to my ambition is, is it a, is it a flaw that I didn't have an ambition to go and write monologues for 
The Tonight Show. You know, is it a flaw that I didn't have an ambition to start an agency? Is it a flaw that I didn't um, become a novelist or whatever? I don't know. And I don't think I'm a good enough writer. I think I'm an accessible writer. And ultimately, I think when it comes to writing, I am just very prolific. And and even that's um, a product of the fact that, one, I I could assign stuff to myself because I did it so long, but also uh, because the reason my T-Bird is so prolific and the reason my Stan is so prolific and it's the reason my snowboarder was so successful because we were doers instead of delegators, you know, and that's part of it too. But I, um, it's really funny too where uh, somebody sent me something I wrote the other day and I had written it in 1998 or 97. How's that? Fucking hell, if someone sent me something, I'd I read it in had 97. no idea. I don't think I'd read it. <laughs> I had no recollection of writing it, no recollection of this, and that's. I'll be like, I don't want to see that. No, I enjoyed it, and I was thinking to myself, man, maybe I used to be better, and you know, now it's like that muscle is such, and that it, I'm almost too efficient. Yeah, the ambition point's an interesting one. So is that, you know, you mentioned those things. Is that a regret? Is that something that you think you should have done? You should have stretched it creatively more. I'm not saying that that's. I'm not being. There's not. That's not. There's no judgment in that. It's just a question because there's no. There's no well, value either or. But yeah. But you. You I, use the word ambition. So like that. That's that's interesting to, to I think, dig in on a little bit, isn't it? I think work-life balance, and I think a lot of pro writers will tell you the same thing. When you enjoy when you work in a field that is that the currency is pleasure having a laugh <laughs> well riding pal yeah. snowboarding traveling uh finding um doing things like this yeah and and in finding um progress through different uh achievements while strapped in yeah i think that's a big problem for people to find a work life balance where your your job is innate would you get a dopamine from your job instead of finding that dopamine when you when you punch out of work you get that dopamine while you're punching into work you know and it's like um you know we talked about me being a potential socal lifer no i wasn't i didn't love socal i mean if i love socal i'd surf yeah i don't surf <laughs> but you know biting a bullet and and making that sacrifice of living in a ski town enabled me to snowboard a lot more than most people I know in a ski town. It yeah. was a means to an end. So mm. It was a very pragmatic East Coast blue collar approach to like, you do what you do till you get to do what you want to do. Kind of yeah. like Craig Kelly winning the world championship several years, you know? Yeah. He wouldn't have been enabled to become this stoic, you know, um, you know, stoic uh, guiding light to the, to the to the free ride lifestyle if he didn't pay his dues which is you know what a ben ferguson did by competing in pipe and stuff like that i mean that holds true but i think a lot of riders a lot of people in my position who do it so long um and there's a lot of things you know like i would 100 percent. i said this a year ago if i had a wife and kids there would be no slush yeah, I would not have resigned from my job. And frankly, I see a lot of people who have wives and kids make a lot more compromises because they have 
external pressures that I don't have. And some people will say it's a Peter Pan thing or this, that, or the other thing. But I think, you know, that's people who are jealous. And those are people who regret not taking an unconventional path when they're hitting that crossroads, you know? But I, I, um, I definitely, you know, think um, I had a distorted ambition because I would get that reward without taking the risk. Yeah. Now, if I had taken a risk and stepped away from snowboarding, you know, I wouldn't be getting free lift tickets, so I'd lose that reward, and I might get a rejection. You know, I might write a script that, you know, doesn't ever get made. You know, and that's that's tough. You know, and I don't know. But right now, I want to be... I create a slush to sit there and and make... and lead by example and, and you know, put literally... Every penny is my money where my mouth is. And, and to sit there and and try to, you know, create something for, I mean, because ultimately back to the direct-to-consumer thing, it's interesting. If, if there isn't an authentic and thriving media out there, then why are there free ride pros? Why are there street pros? Why are there all this stuff in it? And it's really crazy because the conversations I had where it's like that in the back rooms and in the marketing departments of every single brand that is involved in snowboarding, whether it's endemic, non-endemic, this, that, and the other thing, every single one of those brands is sitting there fighting to make sure that all the marketing budgets aren't absorbed into direct consumer because you do spend, you know, $500 on, you know, a dark post and you get sell a thousand dollars worth of goggles you know or whatever that is a very corrupt cause and effect roi situation right there now here's the challenge when it comes to snowboarding there are two commodities at play people will be like when you say commodity are you talking about lift tickets are you talking about season pass are you talking about boots boards bindings no the two commodities that we ultimately the currency we we trade in is one dollar of disposable income one minute of free time those are the two variables at play here. And ultimately, all of us together, side by side as a community, as colleagues, as constituents, we sit there and we try to create something that is going to make people forego sitting inside on a Saturday and streaming, you know, squid games. You know, you're, we're creating something that's going to get people, you know, to not, you know, play Fortnite, you know, for the day or... Uh, not, you know, when I grew up in Killington in the mid eighties, you know, I grew up on a dirt road. Skateboarding was something I did, but talk about a challenge. (laughs) And then, you know, you're skateboarding in a damp basement (laughs) in the middle of the winter (laughs) with a piece of plywood, uh, that, that no transition on that ramp, but I, uh, up against two cinder blocks, but you're like, you know, what was I going to do? Was I going to watch TV and, and watch you know, on television, I got four channels. You know, you had Meet the Press, 700 Club, golf, or football. You know, and then, you know, was I going to ski? No, because skiing, I, whatever. I was young, and I, I thought the kids who had the nicest skis, that's why they were beating me. I always had hand-me-downs from the ski swap. So whatever, that was that was a, 
that was an insecurity thing for me. So, I mean, it's easy to be the best snowboarder in your town when you're the only snowboarder <laughs> in your town. So that's what, what drew me there. And then my friends, because I spent a lot of time in New Jersey with friends, um, skateboarding, going to Point Pleasant, you know, Brave New World, wherever. But, um, you know, what was I going to do? But here we are, 2022, and all the people who were at that trough trying to get trying to sit there and, and pull, you know, absorb and trying to get a piece of all that uh, free time and, and trying to get as many of those disposable income dollars as possible. When it comes down to it, if all of a sudden all we're doing is dealing with the alphabets and the metas of the world, the problem is we're going to lose the conversation because there's always going to be another pastime, whether it's major league sports or, like I said, uh, video games or you know, streaming services or Hollywood or, um, you know, a myriad of other things. I mean, even other stick and ball sports or even golf or even, even our constituent sports of surfing and skateboarding and mountain biking or motocross. If it comes down to something that's like, as, uh, you know, that's whoever has the biggest digital spend, you know, for paid reach is the person who's going to capture that audience. Snowboarding doesn't have, the budget. So if we can't sit there and have a value proposition that's built on the emotional connection and the actual experience of snowboarding and the culture that's built around it, then we're going to lose because if we don't invest in those things and building those, that compelling, inclusive dynamic within our sport, um, we don't have the war chest to compete against everybody else who's trying to get at that market. So how successful do you think this event is in that conversation? In that in that vision that you've just outlined for cuz I agree with you obviously. I mean that's what we've both I mean and bear in mind done you for know, our whole I'm not... careers isn't it? But like what so what cuz obviously this this event posits a vision of snowboarding doesn't it? So how given what you've just said do you think it's successful in that? Okay. So and I'm not perfect and i i am humbled and in awe of what people like sirs travis carter and liam have been able to achieve with this as well as other people uh, involved within the organization and it's like and certainly um as much as i have an aspiration to do something um whether or not i succeed you know i mean and and i'm nobody's perfect but Yes, like I, I recognize that what Travis has done with the natural selection started years ago here in Jackson Hole with natural selection. And what he's trying to do is put the tools in his toolkit to sit there and create an alternative to the commodified um, mainstream spectacles that are the Olympics or the X Games or the Dew Tour, stuff like that. He's trying to sit there and say, hey, I love this. And this this side of the sport has given me so much. I want to I want to figure out a way to drive more of the attention and more of the resources into this this side of the sport that I'm such a product of and such a stakeholder in. That is the most admirable thing in the world. I mean, and in some ways, is it much different than me wanting enjoying watching people enjoying hitting and watching people on quarter pipes? Why we do the World Quarter Pipe Championship? But if we went 12 months ago, I would sit there and say to you you know, a first year event, a success is getting a single or a double and they hit it out of the park. It was amazing. 
what they were able to do that has been sort of the the windmill of of the visual media realm since the beginnings you know since you know Casmus or whoever first aimed a camera at a snowboarder is to sit there and pull the curtain back and 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 really uh bring the viewer away and take them on a journey to where you know snowboarding is at its best and uh, when it comes to steep unbridled terrain like you know it's really hard for somebody growing up in vermont who's who thinks pow days are the days that you can do anything to understand the challenges innate with you know when you're at you know, Palisades or, or you're at Brighton or you're in Grizzly Gulch or you're up in Alaska or you're at Baker or you're at, you know, you're at Rutherford or wherever, you know, it's really hard to translate that to people who've never sat there and, and been there IRL in the real world, analog, seeing it, feeling the cold, the cold smoke, you know, it's just, or seeing the steeps and having, you know, it in your throat where you're like, whoa, you know, and it's just really hard in a 2D environment to make something as gnarly as it is. Now, what they were able to do with the IRLs in the drones, um, in the format, they were able to sit there and say, okay, let's take some of these more dramatic elements. Let's try it. Let's, let's try and make, uh, figure out if there's a different way than just, you know, best of two runs, everybody takes the course, all this. I mean, whether it's the elimination or the presentation with the drones and stuff like that, last year was incredible. And I think they came to closest, if not getting to the point where all of a sudden that was translated to the general audience, you know, the, all those different nuances, because it's rare yeah. that anybody has ever come close to Complete, succeeding at that. Completely yet agree. Thousands yeah. have tried. So I think that's incredible. But the problem is at what cost? And here's the thing, it is the most expensive undertaking from a competitive standpoint in the history of snowboarding. Sure, you could talk about the Chicago Big Air or some of these other events at different times. Lord knows as a piece of the whole, the X Games is expensive or the Dew Tour, but nothing, I don't believe, I would state that nothing comes close to what they executed last year. But, you know, I think because it is so hard, um, it's, it's, and you have you compromise becomes a means to an end. And I mean, that's compromise being a means to an end is part of how I was able to navigate my career for so long, where you rationalize, where you hope in the wash, well, it's you fact achieve of, that goal. I mean, it's a fact of life, isn't it? Like it, it is a fact of life. And there's just so many variables that I think I just wish they were, um, a little less idealistic in some ways because I want this to succeed and you don't want somebody to stick to um, something that you know is so good and so right, but pace yourselves, you know? What is the end game? What is the long play here? You know, sure. And I think they're realizing that as a, a in real time now. I mean, in particular, you and I could talk about it. You know, the real challenge is you got to build an audience for stuff. And unfortunately, the way it works is perhaps two of the most capable riders here will compete against each other in the first round of natural selection. And this, you know, one of the two most capable riders might not be able to compete for two years. I just think it's a work in progress. And I hope 
they have the humility to realize that, which they do. I'm not saying they don't. Yeah. But I, um, but even last year, I got to say, as much as, you know, they built this tour to be a counterpoint and to do it largely, what I'm trying to do with Slush is to sit there and take all the experience of things that have happened in the past and do it right on their own terms and on their own shoulders without the compromises. As much as they did that last year in Jackson Hole, I think it was, you know, back to back to the old ways by the time they got to Valhalla. And I just sit there and think to myself, well, what are the what are the promises that need to be kept? And that ultimately was like, I think, a lesson in compromise. Yeah. Because all the storytelling that was so great in Jackson all last year was out the window. Yeah. I mean, last year was definitely a. And it's COVID. And yeah. I don't want to take anything away from it. But at the same time, I just think it was the juxtaposition of an event that was so forward thinking and that did get everything so right to yeah. all of a sudden go back to the old ways right after was a disappointment. Yeah. And they know it. I, they know it. Yeah, I, I think... Nobody wanted to make that call, but nobody wanted COVID to happen. No, of course. Of course. I think it's just the reality of when you aim so high, though, isn't it? You know, like that you will have to... Because let's be frank, I mean... It's, it's it's only until I've actually got here and worked with everybody here that I've realized like the scale of the ambition, which sounds kind of silly because we all saw it last year, but the scale of what they're trying to achieve here long-term is is pretty remarkable really, you know? Um, but I think when you aim that high and when you start bringing in variables like, for example, weather, as we've had this year, conditions, Olympics, outside factors, human beings, all these things, like, necessarily your vision gets diluted and i think the question is like how do you respond to that i think that's kind of the way i see what's going on with this at the minute well yeah and and again with all the i mean and, and there's people who don't share that vision that ultimately can sway it you know the resorts yeah you know, so not that, saying a, anything a, another another variable so yeah. how do you so how do you stand firm because we've all you know we know from there's been a lot of attempts to do something to represent snowboarding over the years i mean ttr well, being the obvious example that again got just as the years went on just got more and more diluted got more political like you know for whatever reason and just fizzled out in the end didn't it yeah but ultimately i think part of the problem with the ttr was um there were some people involved in the conversation that were very obtuse as far as, oh, TV is the only way to go. Or, like, I was involved in it, and the, the biggest spectator event in North America was the Empire Shakedown, and we're like, hey, there's 10,000 people standing at the bottom of this thing. It's a very uh, progressive and different type of format, and it's great, amazing riders and stuff. And they're like, you know, if you want to sit there and, and gain a foothold of the TTR in Canada and have presence and really diversify you know, and they're like, nah, you know, $50,000 for sanctioning or $20,000 for sanctioning or kick bricks. And it's like, well, let them know if the TTR is bringing some to the table, because this event's been happening for five years or 10 years already without the TTR. So, you know, it's going to happen without the TTR. So why, why would you not build an affinity with that that part of the community and the audience. And again, it was an opportunity where they weren't looking at the long play. And I think the TV aspect was another side of it where they were like, TV is king, which actually, 
at the time there was an argument for that, but at the, you know, in the future, I don't think you're going to see the Dutor on television necessarily in the future because the audience isn't there right now. And imagine if they had stood the course or been a bit more forward thinking with social media and stuff, what the TTR could have been able to muster, you know? Yeah, that's a very, very good point. I kind of forgot that whole TV conversation, but that was a real thing, wasn't it? That was always like what they were shooting for. And even now at this point, it looks a bit anachronistic, really, doesn't it? It looks a bit like it wasn't really, you know, we've talked to one of the themes of this conversation has been like how you, how you stay abreast of what's going on, how you keep ahead of it. And I think that's one of the things, obviously, this event they've done really, really well. Like they've they've kind of done it on their own terms in that way and like how they're going to sh- how they're going to show it, how they're going to tell the story. And yeah, when you look back on that TTR thing, it was a bit it was a bit analog in a digital world in a way, wasn't it? You well, know? I remember at, I think it was Supernatural after the event, somebody came up to me, Mateus or somebody from Red Bull, and they're like, hey, any feedback on this? I go, on the back end, whatever you guys do, this is so incredible. Diversify. Again, back to the different funnels. Make sure that you guys create an event or a production or run a show or a budget where if you lost any one sponsor, it wouldn't all be over. And that's, you know, not the case here necessarily, but I, I hope that they're looking at making decisions in a way that are going to be scalable and sustainable. Because, you know, figure out what you can control because Lord knows you're not going to be able to control the snow. Yeah. And Lord knows, um, unless you, and here's the other thing, and they certainly, Jackson Hole's invested quite a bit into this course, but you need to have partners who, who are aligned with your vision 100% all along the way. And I've, I've realized that through the years quite, quite a bit as well. But uh, okay, so that point with weather, the challenge is this year, I think it's all comes down to weather. And um, again, and I trust anybody listening to this, certainly me, certainly you, if we could control the weather, <laughs> we I, I wouldn't be, I'd be riding, <laughs> I'd riding be power someplace else, probably. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So who's going to win? Come on, it's the day before the final. Let's see how your Nostradamus tendencies are. Well, I hope snowboarding wins to give a cheesy that's the, sound bite. That's the broadcast answer. <laughs> that's the hockey answer. That, that's the uh, that's the that's the look inside. Uh, sorry, the natural selection announcer bingo answer. Um. Ooh, wonderful! I think. Oh come on now! You're putting me on the spot right there. Yeah, especially because um, we're going to know when this comes out. <laughs> yeah, we're going to know when this comes out. So, and and you know what? Some people who don't know the events happening. They, we don't want to do any spoiler alerts. Come on, give me a name. You must, you must have an idea, especially after we, you know, what we saw on Tuesday. No, I can't. I can't say. Who I d- mean, I do have my picks, but yeah, they're my gonna, picks, not the keep, world's. You're gonna keep it in. You're gonna keep it in. Um. So, and how have you found the announcing thing? Because you, you've done. You said it's like what ten years since you since you did any live stuff. Obviously, you called events. You've done all that, but we've been both sort of thrown in the deep end a bit in the in the chair so how have you found it um fine i find it fine i mean it's um certainly i've never announced like the other day i announced with salema and tom and they're just way more pro than anybody i've ever announced with or even when i was announcing and stuff and um that was intimidating not the audience and stuff i mean 
we brought up Deer Rider. I mean, most watched snowboarding film of all time by far at this point. Um, and I, you know, been on remotes on the Today Show and stuff like that. So I, I'm not really intimidated by by being out there. But it's just, um, I just don't want to be, it's part of why I didn't come last year. I just didn't think I was an essential service. Therefore, I didn't want to be part of any problems that may arise in a COVID event situation. Now I'm here and I'm like, hey, I just don't want to be the weak link. Or I don't want to be somebody that they have to make up for. Which, you know, the verdict's still out. You know, so that's what's nerve-wracking for me. And I just uh, want to make sure that I'm not, affecting their abilities i you know mary you jeff salama tom any of their i just don't want to make anybody else look bad let alone the writers or tom so that's a little bit i'm not nervous but i'm conscientious yeah i'm the same front of mind yeah just keep yeah i mean my view was just like all right i'm gonna work very hard (laughs) do my best and try not to be the weak link and uh but you know everyone here is so it's so impressive like how dedicated everybody is here is in this organization and how like you know again as like we kind of laughed about snowboarding let's hope snowboarding is the winner but that is like a legitimate thing about this whole top to bottom of this organization isn't it well of course and and back to where my head is at what makes it really tough for me and what is good for a podcast or what is good for um you know dear rider and stuff is um I, I take a circuitous route, you know, I'll, I'll start with a thesis and I'll go and I'll find a couple of tangents and then I'll circle back. But it's, you know, as a raconteur, it's a long yarn. And even as a writer, I'm a very verbal writer, which means when I come up with a point of view, I'll talk to like a half dozen or a dozen people about, you know, what my point of views are on a given topic topic and and then i get the real-time intel back from them where it either supports my thesis or or it totally upends it you know and then when i'm ready to put the pen to the page i have a pretty well-baked thought now when it comes to this type of announcing you know by a time if i was taking that same approach to like when i do a bomb hole or i do this or as i'm speaking in real time right now on this answer um and what made Dear Ryder, so good as they would come back to me multiple times. It's almost like looking at a video timeline. They'd be like, hey, we need you to pull this thread again because it, it really supports the overall story. And they would like take a little snippet and have me expand upon it. Now, I don't have the ability to do it here, which is why even though I've announced in the L.A. forum and several events on television and Grand Prix and, you know, events like that, it's been a while, so I had to just go back to, to re, you know, uh, the atrophy of that muscle had to be adjusted. And, I, and I've enjoyed it, certainly. Um, but, yeah, I, I think that was the thing that made me nervous and stuff. And, that, you know, here we are doing an interview. And one thing that I was thinking about when we were interviewing, we went around trying to find a place this is actually a really intimate well one i know your voice we've been on plenty of zoom calls over the last couple of years <laughs> yeah and i listen to your podcast a lot and now it's like i've done a lot of these so but um you know what i used to do when i would interview and i just want to get your anecdotal feedback um i used to drive with people whenever i would do an interview like the first time i interviewed sean white was driving probably driven with you know, 80, 100 different pros and interviewed him because the the 
it's such a ubiquitous act driving and talking to people that they immediately forget that there's a recorder between you and there's so much other stimuli yeah. while you're looking out the window. Yeah, no, you don't have the eye to eye intimacy and stuff. It's a which tactic, can isn't it? it? Are you, I think with interviewing, you just need to make people. Yeah, you need to make people forget, establish that rapport, forget they're being interviewed, be relaxed enough to be themselves. And yeah, like your style is really weird. People at home won't see this, but every time you ask a question, you're winking at me <laughs> as if it's not what you intentionally meant to ask. It's so weird. But that's not intentional. Like, I don't even know that I do that. I know. I was, I was telling T-Bird that every time I said something uh, on the on the stream that I was winking at the camera. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I think it's about like, it's how you it's how you get people to forget, isn't it, that they're being interviewed, really? Well, totally. There are some very awkward situations, but you know what? You know what I'm really impressed with is Salema. Yeah, and trust me, he's been in my ear at multiple events. Not I've never announced with Salema till now, and I've known him 24 years. And um, I mean, I've asked him questions before, mainly for print in the you know that that world, but like. Man, he is a pro. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I was pretty impressed. He puts pretty... it on his back and he like, yeah, Salema is like, he puts the polish and makes everybody else Yeah, better. right. Well, Tom's Tom's also really impressed me. Like, yeah. I mean, I knew Tom was, was, was good. But yeah, you know, for me, like I'm so inexperienced at doing this like the announcing thing. Like I've never done anything like it before, really. I've done a lot of live stuff, but I've never done anything with someone in here. So those two particularly have like really, you know, carried me along when we did the rehearsals. And I wasn't in broadcast with them, but we did that rehearsal on Monday. And yeah, they immediately made me think I, I can do this, actually. It's going to be all I right. I love in-ear. Yeah. I love having Rimmer, a we producer. Rimmer, we still got Rimmer because she's, she's been also the savior. Yeah. Yes, I've known Rima for a long time as she was a mammoth loke when I was living up there and teaching, coaching, snowboarding up in mammoths. So right. It's great to reconnect with her. Yeah. But yeah, Salema, I've been very, very impressed by. Yeah. Because it just raises the level, doesn't it? Across, across the whole operation, really. And he gets a lot of shit as well. I mean, which I think is, the more I've worked with him, the more I've just found that quite hard to understand, really like how yeah but it's it's an eight it's where we're at now it's people want to make um people want to sit there and use common threads or whatever to make something about themselves and make their themselves self-important i mean it's amazing the democratization of media that was wrought by you know all that long ago with friendster and leading on to myspace and now um facebook and obviously tiktok twitter all that stuff. But it's like, yeah, I mean, the downside of the democratization is, you know, everybody can have a platform. But yeah. is everybody worthy of a platform? That's the question. I mean, it's a crazy world where we live in where somebody could be in uh, Drake's, Idaho, and try to start a radio station that'll reach 5,000 people. And uh, they have to get an FCC license and pay money and jump through a bunch of hoops. But, you know, Kardashian could have 200 million followers on Instagram. <laughs> with uh you know base level data plan it's just crazy um that that we're in that era now and stuff but um yeah i mean the, that that whole side of it where you just gotta step back and go is is this about me or is this about them 
or is there something else going on here that is prompting somebody to be vitriolic and you know you look at a comment thread and it's like 300 comments and you step back and you go well this is really just 10 people on the left and 10 people on the right just yelling at each other <laughs> yeah you, you, you guys percent of the comments you guys seem to be quite expert at handling that as well with, on, with slush like the way that you navigate that well yeah yeah well i mean it, you're only an expert up to the latest update <laughs> you know yeah once they tweak that algorithm it's anybody's guess you know and they do tweak it a lot but also you got to be you got to understand that all they're not tweaking the algorithms or anything to suit themselves i mean this is a capitalistic society they're tweaking all that stuff to suit their bottom line particularly at this point with these companies getting so big but and they don't get that big without you know adhering to putting the bottom line first but um yeah, but it's a lot of it's pretty obvious and stuff. And I've been in a lot of situations. Talked to my friend Aaron Draplin at one point, and he was dealing with um, stuff last summer when it was very turbulent. And he uh, he wears his politics on his sleeve. He's the only person I know who did graphic design work, both for AOC and Joe Biden last October pre-election. I mean, that tells you. I mean, he's the only person who's uniting <laughs> the, the left. Yeah, but I um. You know, I talked to him and he's like, God, some of these bastards and these people. And he wears his politics on his sleeve, but he's very middle American. He's very big 10 and he's probably the most, you know, one of the most influential graphic designers, certainly on our side of the of of sport and stuff. And he, um, you know, he's like, what do I do? And I'm like, flush the toilet. <laughs> if yeah. they don't like what you're about and who Le you really are, Let then go. you don't need them. And then he's like, OK. And I go, besides, you know, they're selfish. They're trying to make the conversation about them. They don't want to adapt. They don't want to do the work. They don't want to change. They don't want to be open-minded. It's all about them. Whatever it is that brought them to follow you in the first place, they're selfish. They're going to want to get that satisfaction again. So, yes, they might unfollow you today, but they'll be following you again tomorrow, next week, a couple weeks later. It's funny. I, Stan and I are to the point on some stuff where people will be like, you know, I mean, let's talk about it. You know, you've talked about it a bit, but they say that um, snowboarding, the the industry and the media always says, um, you know, snowboarding is a place where people go and turn to to escape from the unpleasantries of life. But at what point does silence say something? And so Stan and I, you know, we do different things and then people be like, well, stay in your lane we're gonna unfollow you this that and the other thing we get to the point where we're like hey man this is the third comment this week that you said you're not gonna unfollow us you still uh... let us know because the button above you know this post is the button that for for you to unfollow and obviously you haven't unfollowed us yet so what's the hold up yeah well you guys got involved in you when it when it mattered you know when 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 it was all kicking off and there was a a requirement you, you've never shied away it wasn't from, a requirement but well you know what i mean though that what you felt that there was it, it was right to to have a view let's put it that way and you've 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 addressed those those topics when they've come up it doesn't come up very often in our world but you've definitely well, not shied away from it when it does i didn't shy away from it. i mean i definitely went to sleep one night thinking i was going to lose three hundred thousand followers and it didn't happen. Lost like three thousand. You know, a lot of, a lot of keyboard warriors that were all talk, but um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a challenge. And it's like everything else. It's like lowering the barrier of entry. It's like growth, participation. I mean, yes, we can we can affect change and do what we think is right. But at the same time, until all stakeholders, particularly at the point of activation, like resorts, you know, really earnestly do, you know, intentional measures and, and do significant things to change what is a race to elitism where all of a sudden all you're going to have, every mountain's going to be a carbon copy of the Yellowstone Club until the ski resorts take the burden in it. Uh, it's a challenge to me, but yeah, whether it's trying to get people to vote for the climate or trying to talk about diversity or trying to lower the barrier of entry. I mean, it's, um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's hard to argue against doing the right thing, mm. you know? And I think a lot of people who don't do it are just lazy or scared. Or, well, they're not scared. I think you don't think, no, no. I think nervous is a better word than scared or insecure about or no i think lazy because i think lazy is the best you know whether it's um changing your 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 perspectives or changing your vernacular and not using pejorative stuff like that or being you what, can do it it's not hard i mean nobody's going to be perfect as long as you're not held up to a standard that's unattainable for you know humans nobody's infallible but just do the work you know, like, uh, anyways, or try. No, you don't even have to do the work. You just try to do the work. You know, it's just lazy to not even say, okay, I'm going to reprogram my mind. It's just being like, ah, oh, fuck all. I'm the way I'm going to be for the rest of my life. Well, you know what? Then you're not going to be contributing to this world. If you're not going to sit there and strive to be the best person you could be for the rest of your life, what are you still doing here? Or being prepared to be wrong as well. Yeah, and, you know, that was another thing I said to um, in early June of 2020. I turned to my staff and I'm like, a lot of people are going to say we're doing too much. A lot of people are going to say we're doing too little. I'm like, well, you know what? <laughs> Anybody who's saying that isn't on this goddamn Zoom call right now. So they have no idea what we're doing or what we're not doing. So fuck all. <laughs> you know, I'm like, don't look at social media. You know, it's funny. I get a notification where Jared Elston's... Uh, like at 11 o'clock at night in early June, 2020, it's like Jared Elston commented. I look at the comment and I call him up. It's like 1130. I go, you okay, dude? <laughs> and he's like, this is really bumming me out. <laughs> These comments from the right. And I'm just like, don't worry about it. Take a deep breath. They want you to react. Yeah. Don't give them the satisfaction because all of a sudden by you reacting, you're changing the conversation to be about them than to be about what's the right thing. And it's, um, yeah, it's imperfect, and I, I mean, it's a journey, you know? I mean, it's, I don't know. I don't know. I'm not going to I'm not gonna sit there and say that um, I learned a lot. Now, whether or not I have properly applied what I learned, I don't know. It's a process. Uh, in what way? What do you mean? When, are you talking generally? Oh, generally, yeah. I mean, for sure. I mean, I mean, again, what I said about, like, you know, the realization that, People are innately selfish. Yeah. You know, and that's where, and that's not a bad thing. I mean, I think at times maybe I should have been more selfish. And um, and just, I think with age comes empathy and stuff. And unfortunately, I think we're, as a sport, particularly snowboarding, we are very challenged because there are some very high profile instances where people just lack empathy. 
I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I could be talking about a couple of things. Yeah, I'm going to leave that hanging to let you decide if you want to go any further on that. No, no, no. I'm just saying it's like I wasn't always empathetic. Yeah, no, I, I mean, think... I cringe. I look back at my pedigree and I say, you know, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I mean, granted, I could say, yeah, I've got cancelable episodes, yeah. cancelable episodes in my past, but at the same time, I'm cancelable today because I'm still here. Yeah. And there's a hundred people <laughs> side to, arm in arm with me back in different eras that unfortunately didn't uh, didn't choose to adapt i just think it is a question of willingness to learn though isn't it and evolve really like because no one's going to be right all the time it's not that hard i mean it's funny i always go back to seatbelt analogies you know it's like am i going to get the vaccine well you know i don't plan to get in a car accident but if i do get in a car accident i'm going to want to wear a seatbelt it's going to be the same thing it's going to be quite handy isn't it yeah and it's like um same thing where it's like i grew up didn't have to wear a seatbelt and then i moved to california where you know i didn't have a registered car so i didn't want to get pulled over without a seatbelt on so i started putting my seatbelt on and i uh yeah you know it's it's um yeah you shouldn't be afraid of figuring something out you know i mean i i deal with creatives and you deal with creatives too who who like sit there and say they use spreadsheets as a bad word and stuff (laughs) spreadsheets are made you know microsoft isn't one of the biggest companies in the world because they make stuff that's hard to use (laughs) you know and their job is to sit there and take these complicated endeavors and make them easier for the lay person so it's like somebody to say they can't figure out spreadsheets is almost a height of laziness. And frankly, I always talk about how figuring out how to use these tools that are the tools of the gatekeepers is actually a very powerful thing in the hands of creative because all of a sudden it gives you even ground with the bean counters where you're like, hey, here's the budget. Here's the here's the PowerPoint and all this stuff. And all of a sudden the bean counters go, well, I feel better giving our money to this guy who knows how to use a spreadsheet and keep a budget than this guy who doesn't. And that's, it's, it is what it is and stuff, but that's the same thing. Like I didn't come out of the womb (laughs) knowing how to use Google sheets. (laughs) Well, it's certainly handy. I didn't learn them in my one year of college. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like the old uh, funnels of revenue thing, isn't it? They're just, they're just all tools, aren't they? Well, that's diversification. You know, the old adage, you don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. Thanks for doing it, Pat. Sorry about the winking. (laughs) (laughs) the question yeah no we're all good but hey thank you and i've been a fan and i'm stoked you brought up Chaz. and i uh yeah i gotta go i hear there's a there's a shark sighting at trestles so i I just got a (laughs) twitter alert from beach grit so um but hey thank you for coming over stoked uh, i mean a lot of our interactions a handful of times we've been in the same room shared the slopes but this is what i mean god a lot of people who I've known for a long time. I mean, I'm very, even when I was at the heavy metal, getting to hang out with like Vinny or Jake O.E. or Ethan Diaz. I mean, it is, it is amazing to, you know, have the interpersonal connections almost getting back to normal and stuff. And I really appreciate you showing your negative PCR test to me before we did this. That was, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's a, that's, hey, that's think, just a uh, requisite. I, th- I think if anyone's got it here, we've all, we've all got it. Yeah. yeah. 
So there you go. That was me and Pat Bridges, and I hope you enjoyed it. Proper, proper funny few days hanging out with Pat. We worked together, like I said, um, doing the commentary on natural selection. Um, we were hanging out every evening, going for dinner, and just generally having a great old catch-up. Um, he got me and Owen absolutely smashed on the last night by giving us both an edible, followed by a whiskey chaser at the rap party, and we completely lost our shit and basically had to crawl home, which was very, very funny indeed. Cheers, Pat, you absolute legend. Look forward to our paths crossing again soon. So, yeah, housekeeping corner. And at the top, I mentioned Mike Rankwitz. Very strange ongoing campaign against Pat and Stat. I'm actually quite loath to even give this any oxygen because Mike Ranquit does not seem the most well-adjusted individual. I mean, the episode on his podcast, which I had the misfortune to listen to, where he talks about Sam Bertolino, the Burton employee who called out Terrier, is really unpleasant, toxic, misogynistic, homophobic. It goes on. Please don't listen to it. I mean... I could feel myself getting stupider with every passing moment um, and I just don't recommend it. But anyway, if you don't know who Mike Ranquit is, he's one of the old school US snowboarding legends and he is a legend, I think that's fair to say, who I believe came up out of Mount Baker in the late 80s. I might be wrong about that and, you know, I apologise if so. He genuinely was one of the most influential riders back in the day. Um, let's just say that male snowboarders of a certain vintage still idolise Mike and everything that he stands for. I mean, I remember avidly watching Riders on the Storm back in the day and films of that ilk and actually dyeing my hair um, peroxide blonde to copy Mike when I was about 15. remember it pretty clearly because I remember walking into school in the pissing Mancunian rain and my history teacher stopping me horrified to ask why I'd gone bald overnight. That actually happened. <laughs> which is pretty funny anyway these days mike um has a podcast called rad matters and he's on instagram and he basically had this huge rant about stan and pat um basically saying who put these two in a position of power their poses the fact that they focus on rails and urban snowboarding rather than powder proves it and i bet stan can't even do a legitimate backside rate which is something that mike seems to find a bit of a deal breaker um, I mean, if you've just listened to that chat with Pat, you're probably thinking the same thing that I'm thinking is like what Pat Bridges doesn't count. Like he's not allowed to talk about snowboarding. Okay. I mean, the entire thing got me th got me thinking in 2022, what even is snowboarding culture? And if Pat Bridges and Stan aren't allowed to take part, who the fuck gets to decide? Um, I know what Mike thinks from listening to his podcast, but... I just thought it was an interesting question. Luckily, my friends at Pleasure Magazine asked me to write a column on exactly that topic. So using this entire instant as fuel, I did just that. Um, I think that's out in a few weeks and no doubt I'll be posting about it on Instagram or via my newsletter and getting absolutely shit posted by Mike Ranquit if he ever hears, hears it um, or reads it. But, you know, I can't, I don't know. Like I say, just baffling really um, what else has been going on well i did on my podcast i have been doing these pieces about uh 10 things i've learned about freelancing basically I, I was in france i was in normandy and i was seeing family over there and then i had to go and see adidas my day job is running an agency called all conditions media adidas one of my clients 
So we had a meeting, Adidas are based in a town called Herzo, I can't pronounce it, sorry. Um, so everyone calls it Herzo, near Nuremberg. So I thought, you know what, I'm going to get the train. I'm going to get the train from Normandy to Nuremberg, which I did. It was 11 hours each way. Um, and I very much enjoyed it because it was a bit like being back pre-COVID. Got the train from uh, Lyson to Paris and from Paris to Stuttgart and then from Stuttgart to Nuremberg. 11 hours. And when I was on that train, so that's a 22-hour journey in total, I thought, I'm going to write an article. Um, so I wrote an article, which was the 10 things I've learned about freelancing, which turned into this hugely self-indulgent yet massively enjoyable for me anyway peace and i posted it on my newsletter in two parts and it seemed to go down very very well um i got a lot of feedback about that and a lot of people shared it which is very nice a lot of people said that it was really helpful um you know it's all good if you want to sign up for the newsletter anyway you can do that on my website www.wearelookingsideways.com anyway i bring all this up because one of the points 10 things i've learned about freelancing just to state my credentials, I've been freelancing for um, 26 years now, um, I believe, um, and making a living from it. So, you know, I think I'm kind of allowed to write a piece about it. One of the things I talked about was pitching and how to pitch. And, you know, and it it reminded me of that because I got a, I got pitched this week by somebody who was asking if they could be my podcast editor. Um, I'm going to read it because it's quite funny. Good day. I really resonate with the content you're putting out into the world. I was listening to an episode of your podcast called Yvette Curtis Good Trouble and I found some technical flaws in it. Ums, hums, hiss, pauses, repeated unnecessary words, clicks, popping, mouth mouth noises. I mean, surely that's just going to happen, right? And background noises. Obviously a first time listener. The sound quality of any podcast is extremely important, especially in today's competitive podcast market. I can eliminate and reduce these flaws in your future podcasts and improve the overall quality. This improvement can potentially increase the number of your future listeners as your podcast will become more professional sounding and enjoyable to listen to. Would this be something you would be interested in? Warmest regards. So, I mean, I'm not interested because I've got an editor called Fina, who's a legend. And, um, you know, we don't care about that stuff, really. We made the decision to kind of leave it in because we like the fact that it's fairly naturalistic. <clears throat> so, you know, if you, if that annoys you, sorry about that. But that's the way it's going to be. My podcast, my rules. Um, but as a pitch, I just thought it was, it's bold. The complicit pitch I don't think I've ever tried that in the 25 years or 26 years or whatever it is that I have been pitching. I've been I've done a lot of fucking pitching over that time and I've never gone for the I really like that shit thing you're doing and I can make it better approach. Um, so I do take my hat off for that, but it didn't work. Um, and I just thought it was funny. So there you go. Um, that is enough for me this week. I am going to be back soon. What have I got going on? Um, I mean, I don't know about you, but it feels like this year is becoming a normal-ish year. I mean, I know COVID is, I know COVID is rife. I know we're, there's a war going on, and I know that um, there's an apocalyptic energy crisis in the United Kingdom, which is going to push a lot of people into poverty. I know all those things. All I'm saying is, my calendar 
is filling up again. Um, and I've got a few things going on. That's what I mean when I say it feels like a normal year. Um, I'm off to Aviemore next week where I'm going to catch up with my friends, um, Lauren McCallum, Hannah Bailey and Leslie McKenna, and maybe even record a special four part as in one episode, but you know, four people speaking, if you include me, um, conversation with those guys. And I mentioned this in my newsletter, but yeah, there's going to be, I'm going to do an event. I'm uh, chatting to my friends at DB who um, were discussing doing an event in Hossegore in June where I'll be doing some live interviews and a load of other stuff. So I will keep you posted on that as it happens. Um, but it should be good. should be good to do an event. I've been talking about it for fucking long enough after all. All right, I'm off. Nice one.